I am excited to introduce our guest today, the CEO of Marathon Digital Holdings and previously the CEO of GameSpy, local corporation, Lantronics, and served as chairman of the boards to the Youth President's Organizations Technology Network and as chairman of the FinTech Subnetwork. He also serves on the boards of several other companies, including Odin Technologies, OptConnect, Gatekeeper Systems, and Sequence Software. Fred Thiel, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So it's great to have I, you. I said a lot of companies and words. I feel candidly like I did not even do justice to all that you have done. What did I miss in introducing you? Just that I'm an old fart who's been in the technology industry for 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> you are not doing yourself justice, sir. So well, as you've as you've been in just technology as a whole for so long, would love to just hear how you first heard about Bitcoin and what was that initial reaction? So kind of a long story, but I initially heard about Bitcoin back in 2011 and then kind of was following it. I've always been a science fiction fan and a lot of cypherpunk stuff and really looked at Bitcoin as something of a curiosity. It was interesting. And then one of my former CTOs called me one day and said, this is kind of as a result of the 08 crisis, you know, now we're, this is most right, 2013, he said, you know, I'm so sick and tired of what's going on in the markets and just government oversight. I'm putting 100% of my cash into Bitcoin. I said, what? He said, I'm putting 100% of my cash into Bitcoin. But wow. That's ballsy. Fast forward about another year later and we were talking and he said, yeah, no, this is really exciting. I'm doing all this stuff. So he kept kind of prodding me and prodding me. And then in early, I started looking at, you know, how trading was happening in Bitcoin and had some time on my hands and sort of had thought about, you know, there's this really interesting arbitrage play that seems to be happening between exchanges. And I was seeing what Alameda was the kind of the type of strategy, similar to what Alameda used. And, you know, growing up, I had, you know, sat around the dinner table. My stepmother was a for, was the senior economist at the OECD responsible for banking and regulations and helped bring the now, you know, Soviet Federation into the OECD and then the EU by helping craft a lot of their financial regulations. And so dinner table conversation had always been about regulations. And so I thought it would be really cool if one could build an exchange that allowed you to trade on top of all the other exchanges. And so wrote a white paper for a business called Sprocket, which was essentially an exchange that would allow you to trade across multiple exchanges out of one order book and the one wallet. And raised a little bit of money, started building the product, couldn't get anything like this license in the US, went to Switzerland, talked with the authorities there. They thought it's great, but if you're successful, you're going to have to become a bank. So don't even try. Ended up in Liechtenstein working with the law firm there to get the Liechtensteinian government, who's part of the EU, to craft a law that essentially defined Bitcoin and Ether as currencies such that they could be traded as foreign exchange under a foreign exchange license, got a foreign exchange license and started trading. And you know, the problem is that when you're successful with these types of things, all of a sudden the regulators say, okay, well now you have to do this, you have to do the other. And in the end, there was a, a need to get a banking license and other things that really were nearly impossible for a US-based company in those days. And so we ended up abandoning that project. But I learned a huge amount about Bitcoin and Bitcoin trading and aspects of Bitcoin and the crypto market during that period of time. 
And I got involved with Marathon in 2018 because a close friend of mine who was CEO at the time, Mariko Komodo, he had joined in 2017 with kind of a mandate to build a Bitcoin mining business inside a public shell. Marathon's history as a company started back doing vanadium mining way back when, and then did some real estate stuff, did oil and gas stuff. And, you know, these smaller public companies, they get taken over by investors and repurposed. And you may have heard the expression about buying a public shell, which is really like an empty public company that's not doing anything. Marathon was one of those back in the day. And at one point, a group of people had sort of focused the company on being a patent troll and Marathon Patent Group, which was the immediate predecessor to Marathon Digital Holdings, acquired a bunch of patents, one of which is a basic underlying patent for you know limited voice commands for an electronic device. Think Siri, Alexa. And had you know prosecuted this patent against certain large companies that had were using this technology and gotten a license fee eventually from one of these large companies, but had essentially run out of money. And so another group injected capital into the company and uh, wanted to direct it to doing Bitcoin mining. And uh, Moto joined in 2017. He asked me to join the board in 2018 because of my just technology background and knowledge of crypto. And that was kind of the start of Marathon's mining operations. But I've always found Bitcoin and crypto to solve a huge amount of problems created by the friction that exists in the financial systems. And, you know, it, the whole issue of just trying to wire money when I was running this startup in Liechtenstein, wiring money from the U.S. to a law office in Liechtenstein, you'd think it'd be easy. It's not easy at all. I mean, it was, well, wait a second, is this lawyer on an OFAC list, et cetera, et cetera. And it was just very complicated and just kept getting more and more reinforcement that, you know, Bitcoin was a solution to a lot of these issues and continue to believe that still to this day. So. No, I, I really appreciate that. And I, I want to touch on that aspect in a little bit, but there's something actually I didn't even realize about your story, the experience you had with building out an exchange and then having regulators practically just come out of the woodworks to just kill all the work you guys have done. And we have a lot of conversations on this show just about attempts to regulate or create rules and boundaries for Bitcoin more specifically. We don't really give a rat's butt about crypto or any of the other shit coins as we like to say here. But I'm curious if you pay attention to some of these regulatory efforts that are going on in, in our country right now as it pertains to just proof of work mining or even just the broader Bitcoin ecosystem. And if anything sort of flashes like this warning sign of, wait, I, I've lived through this once before in my previous experience. This is a really bad thing. Is there anything like that right now going on in your opinion? Yeah. I mean, back when the internet was a new thing in the mid-late 90s, I was very involved in Ethernet and data comms technologies and saw the whole rise of you know the internet from the perspective of at first you could go out and use this thing called you know Netscape and you could go look at some websites that had a bunch of text and hyperlinks on them. And everybody was saying this is used by porn and, and crime and it needs to get regulated up the gazoo. Not unlike what's happening in the crypto world today. The difference is, you know, in the world of Bitcoin and crypto, you have, you know, trillion dollar markets that have established. And so the regulators are having to play catch up. You know, if you go back to the early days of the Internet, Web 1.0, you know, there was no financial incentive at the base layer. Layer 1, TCP IP, there was no revenue there. It was all about the applications you were going to build. And Web 1.0 was publishing information. And it wasn't until you really got to Web 2.0 that commerce really started and you had the ability to share content and do other things. So 
uh, in the crypto world, you know, today, I think as relates to Bitcoin specifically, you know, the major battle that's going on with regulators, if you want to call it that, it's a discussion, really a debate, is proof of work versus proof of stake. And we spend a lot of time educating the regulators, the energy regulators especially, about you know, the differences between proof of work and proof of stake, how proof of work is inherently so much more secure than proof of stake. And, you know, don't need to share with you guys all the reasons why proof of stake is a really a recentralization. If anything, it's moving, you know, Ethereum away from what was a decentralized network to something highly centralized and highly controlled. But really, it's letting people understand, you know, the why of proof of work. And then also the fact that proof of work, if you look at even the latest Cambridge report that was published last week, you know, they came out and said, yeah, you know, the Bitcoin network is now using less energy than it used to. It's emitting less greenhouse gases. And while they didn't conform their numbers necessarily to the Bitcoin Mining Council's numbers, you know, it was still in the high 30 percent range that was coming from renewable and sustainable energy sources. So, you know, we're starting to get that education out there. We're also starting to have people see and understand the benefits of proof of work mining as relates to stability of the energy grid. I was just in the Middle East working with an energy regulator there where they have an issue where in the summertime that you have to use and generate lots of electricity in the wintertime, it's considerably less. And what do they do with all that excess capacity? And how do they avoid having to pay subsidies to consumers for the price of electricity? And they have really bought into the fact that Bitcoin mining is a great way to balance their grid. It's a great way to eliminate government subsidies for consumers, especially if the government energy producer is the one who's generating the Bitcoin. And I think we're going to start seeing that more and more that energy companies, and this is something I've been talking about for over a year, uh, really need to get involved into the coin mining business because it's a great tool for them, great for the consumers, great for the energy grid, and great for everybody all around. And at the end of the day, you know, the Bitcoin global network uses you know less than 0.1% of the energy that's produced in the world. There are a lot of uglier things that use a lot more energy than that and a lot of less useful things that use a lot more energy. So just about educating people. I don't think we're gonna see any really strong regulation in the US as relates to trading and movement of Bitcoin, et cetera, outside of traditional KYC AML, which is just something we all have to live with, unfortunately, if you're a financial institution, public company, et cetera. But I, you know, I, I, I'm very optimistic that the regulators are going to let Bitcoin kind of be separate and apart from a lot of the other cryptocurrencies that are thought to be securities and deemed to be securities. I've spent time talking with Chair Benham at the CFTC about this. And, you know, he's very focused on DAOs now, as is Gary Gensler. And, you know, I, I think the regulators are looking at these types of decentralized organizations and, you know, how do you hold somebody responsible if and when they do something? You know, Bitcoin everybody agrees it's a commodity. You know, there's some accounting issues the regulators need to deal with. We need to be able to turn Bitcoin into property as opposed to this long-lived intangible assets. And, you know, that only really matters to financial institutions because how they hold it on their books, they can't mark their Bitcoin to market. They have to essentially just impair it. Anytime it goes down in value, they have to mark it down, but they can never mark it back up, which financial institutions don't like and investors don't like. So, you know, there's some accounting rules that have to get put in place, but this is basic blocking and tackling of any new asset class that gets created. So I think it's just par for the course. You know, I would be much more worried if we were in the Ethereum camp or one of these other crypto stablecoin areas, because those areas are really going to be addressed and a, a kind of focus points for uh, regulators coming forward.
I do, I don't know if you caught this at the tail end of when we were talking using notes, but I have concerns about the fact that it feels like the only regulators on Bitcoin side are, is Gary Gensler. And should Gary Gensler just be asked politely to not return to his position, you kind of have this like wild card of, well, hopefully the next guy up or next girl up also views things the same way he does. I do want to just maybe unpack a little bit about we see jurisdictionally in, in this country conversations happening around energy usage, around Bitcoin mining. We have New York doing everything possible to, I think, make Bitcoin viewed as some sort of like evil thing that exists in our world. Meanwhile, you have a state like Texas, which I'm not shy to admit it, over the last two years, I spent a lot of time mocking Texas's energy grid. And then this last summer, I had to eat my own words because we saw them really answer the call, embrace Bitcoin and use Bitcoin mining to its benefit. I wonder if when you see examples like Texas or New York, how much more time and effort are you spending to grow the ecosystem in Texas? And also how much time are you spending trying to combat some of that FUD that goes on in a place like New York? Great question. So I, I think Texas is an exciting market for Bitcoin miners. It's an unregulated market, which has its pros and cons in that you know energy prices float and you can trade the energy markets there. The challenge is a lot of Bitcoin miners have decided to set up shop in Texas. And so um, it's getting to the point where there's some saturation going on. And you know, ERCOT's role is really to try and balance the grid. And with all these new Bitcoin miners coming online, it's becoming more and more of a challenge. So I think you know, we're going to start seeing ongoing delays for new mining operation approvals. It's not something that's from an ERCOT perspective affecting us at all. But I think you know, there's a lot of mines that have applied for power permits. And I think you're going to start seeing you know, more delays there. You know, we're kind of very focused now on areas outside of Texas. You know, with our King Mountain site, we'll have 280 megawatts running in Texas when that site's fully operational here this month. And so that's enough concentration for us in Texas that we now want to focus other places. We've got some of the applied blockchain sites that, that will come up in the end of this year are in Texas. And then the bulk of it is really going to be in North Dakota. And then we're also looking internationally. So we think New York is a market we've shied away from purposefully. We think, you know, like in any situation where you have, in this case, a bad actor who pissed off people in the community, they went to their government regulators and complained and the government regulators and politicians have decided to lash out and specifically target Bitcoin mining with their moratorium. You know, while you could argue back and forth that they're specifically targeting Bitcoin mining or not, basically, you know, resuscitating a fossil fuel plant for specific Bitcoin mining seems to be a pretty targeted attack in my perspective. So, you know, we're trying not to do anything at all in the state of New York. We just don't think it's a friendly environment. We think there are other states that are much more friendly and we're focusing our efforts there. And you may say, well, why don't you help lobby about the state of New York thing? Well, we have to focus our efforts on lobbying in the states where we do want to work. But I, I, I think... You know, New York over time will change their tune, especially when they realize the benefits of the, that Bitcoin mining can have on their grid. And the New York grid is a very complicated grid because most of the power is generated in the north of the state. Most of it's consumed in the south of the state. All the renewable energy is in the east of the state and the natural gas energy that's readily available is in the west of the state. Their grid operates really well north-south. It doesn't operate very well east-west. 
So that they have their own issues there that have to do with infrastructure. No, to to go off of what you're saying, Fred. I mean, I I don't think it's. I think that's the right strategy, personally, as you know, someone who was at one point a shareholder of, of Marathon to not exert your energy fighting this uphill batter, battle and instead just continue to expand. It kind of reminds me almost the the way marijuana was legalized in California after seeing the benefits of other states having legalized it and the cash flow and the taxes that Colorado started to get. California sat here and was like, all right, we, we might have messed this up and we should probably start to capitalize on this market. I could see something very, very similar of oh, wow, Texas made how much money doing this? And we said, no, okay, you're out. Someone else come in here to fix this up. But I don't know. I drank some hopium this morning, so. <laughs> so you mentioned you mentioned something that was interesting to me. It sounds like you guys are focused on kind of geographically, you know, distributing yourselves so that you are not yeah. as much at risk for these kind of regulatory attacks. Totally makes sense to me. And I'm curious in that vein, how much of a tailwind did you guys experience the the China mining ban, if at all? You know, there was a there was such a strong narrative around all of these ASICs, you know, leaving China and flowing into other places or becoming entering the market. You know, I'm just curious what your experience of that was, given the position that you're in. Yeah, I mean, we had a great tailwind. Our that was counterweighted, if you would, by the fact that our hardened facility had continual operational issues. And, you know, I don't have to go into those because we're now fully transitioned out of that site. But, you know, that was a coal-fired power plant that just kept breaking. And so we got really optimistic. Great, all this hash rate's coming down. We're going to be able to mine a huge ton of Bitcoin. And then all of a sudden, uh-oh, the power plant's down again. So for us personally, we experienced when the plant was running, you know, great rewards. I mean, we were mining in some days four blocks with the small amount of hash rate that we had, which was excellent. But, you know, eventually the global hash rate caught up and here we are now well, well back on trend where, you know, we should have been. So we're at about 240x a hash globally today. And, you know, I think we're going to continue to see that hash rate grow as, you know, we continue to deploy as, you know, other large miners continue to deploy. Uh, you know, I, I think we'll eventually get back to a place where you know, potentially before the next halving, you know, we'll see global hash rate, you know, north of, you know, mid 300, something like that. And that's going to be really interesting for this industry. I think, you know, Bitcoin price has to move a whole lot to compensate miners for the impact of the halving come early 2024. So if I'm following the timeline correctly, my understanding is you Marathon has actually not necessarily, actually, I take that back. Marathon has dealt with one halving in 2020 and 2024 will be the second in Marathon's company mm -hmm. history. If you don't mind, would love to hear sort of how you guys plan around the halving, knowing this block reward is going to continuously be cut in half. So, you know, one of the things we did, you know, back in 2020, and we did it again last year was, you know, we're always trying to buy the most energy efficient machines so that our fleet is at the bleeding edge, if you would, of energy efficiency. And by the time our full 23 exa hash is running mid next year, 66% of our hash rate will be based on S19 XPs or essentially the most energy efficient miner out there running at roughly, you know, 21 joules per terahash. Put that in context, the Bitcoin mining fleet globally today averages about 46 joules per terahash of energy efficiency. Having a fleet that 
our average come mid next year will be about 24, 25 joules per terahash, will make us one of the most energy efficient miners. And what that does is gives us a cost advantage at the halving because the miners we're using are so energy efficient. And then by doing things like overclock and other things like that using immersion, you can extend those benefits. So the goal is to maintain as low a cost to mine as possible so that the impact of the halving is minimized. And then you have to let Bitcoin price go where Bitcoin price goes. But if you think about it today, generally the break-even point for most miners today is in the kind of mid-teens, you know, so, you know, fourteen, fifteen thousand dollars per Bitcoin. It's not ours. Ours is lower than that. But the average miner is kind of at that level of the big guys. So come having effectively, you know, your cost is going to double, right? Because your reward rate halves. So at $26,000 a Bitcoin, twenty you know, $30,000 a Bitcoin, you'd be break even. So, you know, Bitcoin price has to move up for the industry to continue to thrive and grow. The best thing about the Bitcoin network is that it self-regulates. You know, if miners start pulling miners offline because it's, uh, you know, not economical to mine, then the difficulty rate drops, which means that you need less energy to produce a Bitcoin, which means all of a sudden you return to profitability and stasis will always be kind of found. So likely long-term, not at this halving, but most probably by the time of the next halving, you're going to see margins in the industry come down to kind of 30 or 40% for margin on the marginal cost to produce a Bitcoin. And that'll essentially mean only really the large scale or highly specialized operators who have very unique power pricing or power deals will be able to continue to operate. And we'll see kind of a, a broader cleansing. I think you're also going to see a lot more energy companies becoming primary miners, meaning mining for their own account. And, you know, that's a whole other ballgame because they obviously control their energy costs in a very different way. Another industry that I think is going to be interesting is alternative fuels than traditional energy that we use today. So Marathon, for example, our goal now is we establish our Bitcoin mining operations behind the meter at the source of energy at a renewable energy plant, which is typically solar or wind, primarily wind in our case. And what that means is our cost, our margin cost to produce a Bitcoin when the wind is blowing is very low. And when the wind isn't blowing, we have to take energy off the grid and then we're trading on the grid just like everybody else does. And so by partnering with large energy companies, in this case, NextEra Energy is our partner in West Texas, we're able to leverage their energy trading expertise, as well as obviously a very low PPA on the wind side. And when the wind does blow and Ericot needs to buy energy from us and we're curtailing, we can sell that energy back to the grid at very high margin. So we benefit from it on that side. So I think you're going to see miners that are able to do that will thrive. Miners who are sitting on grid only, meaning they're not at the point of power generation. They don't have kind of captive access to wind, solar, nuclear, biofuel, hydro, whatever it is. They're going to be more of in a world of hurt as these energy markets keep fluctuating. I think if you look at how a number of the hosting companies operate today is, you know, they uh, contract with a miner at a fixed rate per kilowatt hour, and then they go out and play the spot markets. And I think, you know, that's gotten some people into trouble. It certainly seems to be a challenge for some of the larger third-party hosting companies. Core has already talked about that with their Georgia facility and how that's impacted them. And I think, you know, you're going to see it with other miners as their energy contracts renew and go up in price. So I think it, we're going to see a cleansing coming forward here in the market. And uh, it'll, it'll be quite interesting. But you know, again, the beauty of 
Bitcoin and how the Bitcoin network operates is that it self-regulates. And it's really looking for this stasis point where there's enough mining capacity to ensure the security of the network and at the same time ensure enough profitability for miners such that they're willing to keep their miners operating. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. This podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, BitMEX. BitMEX is one of the biggest supporters of the Bitcoin space in the last decade, actively donating to developers and putting out some of the most cited research articles. What you might not know is that BitMEX recently launched a brand new spot exchange and mobile app that takes the experience of buying and holding to the next level. We know that, especially in uncertain market conditions, you need an exchange that is trustworthy and innovative. Sign up at BitMEX.com today, check out the BitMEX blog for some great market insights, and stay tuned to our podcast for more from their team. Bitcoin Magazine and the team that brought you the world's largest Bitcoin conference is bringing the mission of hyper-Bitcoinization global with the inaugural European gathering this fall. Bitcoin Amsterdam takes place October 12th through 14th at the beautiful Westergaas venue in the heart of the city. Join thousands of Bitcoiners for three days of curated Bitcoin content that is relevant to the emerging Bitcoin scene in Europe and the global movement. Confirmed speakers include Dr. Adam Back, Alex Gladstein, Greg Foss, Ray Youssef, and many, many more. This will be an immersive conference, which includes hands-on engagements at our proof-of-workshop stage, as well as exclusive content for VIP whales in the deep. Bitcoin Amsterdam's exclamation point will be a massive Bitcoin party and music festival that you won't want to miss. The European installment of Sound Money Fest takes place on day three of the event, October 14th, and admission is included with GA and whale passes. Check out all the details at b.tc forward slash conference and use promo code BMLIVE for 10% off. Ticket prices increase on August 21st, so grab your tickets today for €299 for a GA ticket and €3,499 for VIP whale passes. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. Can you speak a little bit more to the like how the the mining landscape is changing or may change as these major energy companies that you mentioned start stepping into mining themselves? Like, how do you guys think about that? What are the how does that change the uh, the competitive landscape overall? Well, it, you know, the most competitive aspect of mining there are really two areas. I think there are three constraint points. So. As a miner, we look at access to rigs. So how do you get the best rig possible at the best price possible? How do you get energy at the right with the best hosting possible? And then how do you get capital to invest in those two things? In our case, our model is asset light. We don't like to own the infrastructure. You know, it's a very different economic model to own transformers and switch gear and all the power substations. That's an energy play that is a 20-year model. And the world of Bitcoin is really three to five-year cycles where you have whole new equipment that comes out, new technologies. You know, For example, now we're shifting from air-cooled to immersion. That means all that infrastructure you invested in, the buildings you built, the containers you bought, you have to throw those out or reconfigure them. So you have to invest even more CapEx. So we prefer not to have to do that CapEx investment, instead invest all our capital in miners, and then we partner with people who are doing best-in-class operations. And so the third-party mining model works if you can negotiate the right power pricing. 
And we believe that we have that model today. So that gets us the benefit. But the energy companies, you know, in some cases, they're essentially able to take all their stranded energy and invest that or deploy that for Bitcoin mining. You know, I don't think we're quite there yet where you're going to see an energy company put a gigawatt of their own energy generation capacity at Bitcoin mining. But you are seeing energy companies already putting in significant numbers of megawatts. And it wouldn't surprise me at all that within the next three years, you're going to see a major energy company, you know, have upwards of 20 or 30 exahash of mining capacity. And, you know, that's going to change the game for the hosting business because you're either going to be a self or you're just going to be a, uh, an operator of hosting for retail. Um, this really business of being a, a third-party hosting company for large-scale miners like ourselves, I think it's going to disappear over time. It'll be the energy company will provide the hosting or you're going to own all that infrastructure yourselves. And I think potentially over time, you might see some miners even own their own power generation. But I think that's quite a far ways off. At this that's point. so interesting. Can, can you, for the audience, give like a, a, a super high-level overview of the broad strategies that, you know, large scale mining operations like Marathon can sort of operate under? You know, you mentioned how you guys approach it. What are kind of the, yeah, what are those broad categories, like the top sort of three to five strategies there? Yeah, I mean, you're, so if you think about the traditional model, Riot, Core, any miner like that, they take facility, they find a site, they get a power contract with an energy company or they buy it off the grid. And then they bring in third-party miners, companies like Marathon, to mine at their facilities. They get those miners to pay deposits, even make CapEx contributions to build out the infrastructure, and then you know use those revenues and those cash flows to subsidize their ability to do self-mining themselves at those sites. That business model, I think, is going to disappear because the capital required to build out a third-party site for third-party hosting and with the potential bankruptcies of miners, et cetera, impacting these companies. It's a very low return business. I mean, if you look at the, the filings for Riot and for Core, what you'll see is their third-party hosting businesses lose money. They don't make money on that. And so why do it other than to use it to subsidize your own self-mining business? But if they're not profitable, they're not providing any subsidies. So as we look at this, we think it's better to be a pure play self-miner and just mine, but then partner with people like NextEra Energy, for example, where we can get really exciting energy deals that allow us to compete side by side with any of the top vertically integrated guys. And, you know, I think if you were to compare our cost to mine a Bitcoin with any of the top, you know, fully integrated guys, you'll see we're right in line with them, and in some cases, even much better. So that model of you know hosting for third parties, use that to subsidize building the infrastructure for your own miners, I think is a dead model at this point. And you know, time will tell. In our case, it's asset light. You know, the, the benefit with our strategy is that if we want to move to immersion, you know, we can just go to whoever's got the best solution, plug in there. When it comes to immersion, We've spent a lot of time testing lots of different solutions. We've picked the players we want to work with relative to the container technology and the immersion technology. And then, you know, we go where the, we can find the best deals to work with those guys. And uh, that agility provides us with a huge amount of flexibility in our business model. You know, if after five years at a site, um, you know, we can pick up our miners and move or we can sell those miners and just establish a new site, we don't have to continue investing in an old site. So for example, 
if you're a large company like Riot or Core and you've got all this investment in infrastructure in Texas, what happens if the market changes in Texas, right? They own all that infrastructure. They're stuck there. Me, at the end of my hosting agreement, I pick up my miners, I move. So our model provides for a lot more flexibility. And then the third model, which very few people can do, is vertically integrated in a different way. And that's what Bitmain does. They manufacture mining rigs and then they mine their own Bitcoin. And they do that using, you know, by partnering with people either in the business or establishing their own Bitcoin mining operations through affiliate relationships with companies that they own. But, you know, there are very few hardware manufacturers. Oh, no, I think we, I think we, we lost you, Fred. Come back to us. I'm here. Can my back? Yes, you are. You're back. Good. All right. Got it. Uh, No, this is all super, super interesting. And I'd love it if you could share, despite all of these different sort of strategies that Bitcoin miners approach the industry with, capitulation and shifts of this strategy are not, no one system is agnostic from that. I feel like across the industry, a lot of people, especially over the last six months, as Bitcoin's price is just sort of cratered, we're sort of dealing with, I think, a shift in strategies. Do you mind touching on sort of, I jacked, I jacked up, my bad P. Do you mind touching on just sort of how you guys shifted your strategy and what Marathon's capitulation did look like? You know, we haven't changed our strategy in the last year, really. We haven't sold any Bitcoin, you know, unlike our colleagues in the industry that have sold a lot of their Bitcoin. That doesn't mean we won't sell Bitcoin going forward to cover operating expenses. You know, our model is very much, now I'll sound like the, you know, old fashioned financial guy here, but we use a calculus that's called a weighted average cost of capital. So what does capital cost us to raise? What kind of return do we have to provide our shareholders or a lender in the way of interest on a loan? And what types of things are we going to invest in that will give us a return that's higher than that weighted average cost of capital? And with interest rates going up, debt's getting more expensive. Luckily, Marathon's been able to get debt at very reasonable prices. And, you know, thankfully we have as a public company, you know, with a high volume of sales in our shares, the ability to raise money in the public markets. And so, that allows us to, you know, invest in machines and grow. But, you know, going forward, do we want to use expensive debt or do we want to use expensive equity potentially to pay for our operating expenses? And so we're constantly looking at, is it better to hold Bitcoin? Is it better to sell Bitcoin? Is it better to do a blend of the two? And what's really interesting is that we did a study where we looked at if you had started mining in mid-2020, and you were going to mine through mid-2025. We used kind of Biduda's projections on global hash rate growth and kind of a mid-case for the price of Bitcoin where it's basically going to move up towards kind of 50000 by the um, by mid-2025, so fairly conservative estimate. Three scenarios. You hold all your Bitcoin, you sell all your Bitcoin, and you hold half and sell half. What was really interesting was based on that, Holding all your Bitcoin for that five-year period was the least profitable. Selling all your Bitcoin for that five-year period as you earned it was the next least profitable. And the most profitable was selling half your Bitcoin and holding half your Bitcoin. And I did a presentation on this at Bitmain's last event. And 
you know, it's really interesting. It, it, if you look at an environment where Bitcoin isn't going exponential, then it really does make sense to sell some Bitcoin to cover your operating costs. Now, that being said, some of our colleagues in the industry sell 100% of the Bitcoin they produce because they have high debt service, they have other issues like that. You know, we have very low debt, currently about $50 million of debt. So it's next to nothing on this scheme of things. So, you know, you got to look at that weighted average cost of capital. Uh, on how you're going to do it. Uh, the other thing, strategy-wise, you know, we haven't changed our model of third-party hosting. You know, we've made more and more of a commitment to immersion mining as we look at kind of the you know 2023 kind of deployments and what we're going to do next year. But you know, I think otherwise our strategy is pretty much the same. You know, some of our colleagues in the industry are abandoning sites. They're selling all their Bitcoin. They're doing all sorts of other things. Some who were building sites just for their own use are now having to bring in third-party miners to help cover some of their costs. Again, we don't have those challenges. We don't have those infrastructure capital raising challenges because we don't invest in infrastructure. So I just did some quick math, Fred, while you were explaining all of that. Based on the debt level you provided, it would take about 2,500 Bitcoin to just pay that off. And a quick little Google search based on your guys' last earnings report, you have just under 9,000 Bitcoin on your balance sheet. So by the rules that Jay-Z taught me, you can pay off that debt more than three times over. Y'all are just doing fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we actually have over 10,000 Bitcoin on the balance sheet for our most recent reports. So, and you know, now our King Mountain site is is ramping. You know, we're mostly one of the most fully transparent Bitcoin miners out there. We have our own pool. Anybody can go look with a block explorer or with, you know, to see what our pool is producing. And if you've been looking at it recently, you're starting to see we're winning a lot of blocks. And the only way we can win a lot of blocks is because obviously we're putting on a lot of hash rate. So things are looking good. Has any thing going on in the macro world from the chip shortages, supply chain holdups, and just anything in general inhibited Marathon's ability to reach its 2022 goals for hash rate output? Indirectly, yes. So for example, you know, if you think about our King Mountain site, you know what were the delays there in getting that site live and operational? Those were regulatory delays around you know, ERCOT. Those were all solved pretty early. And then it became a FERC delay related to a tax exemption for one of NextEra's partners. So those aren't macroeconomic at all. But if you then look at, you know, the drop in the value of stock, you know, all the mining company stocks dropped 80%, something like that. You know, the debt markets have gone up, you know, that's impacted our ability to raise money. Granted, the really interesting thing about the Bitcoin mining industry is when times get tough, prices come down. <laughs> So, you know, the machines that we ordered the, you know, we ordered over $850 million of S19 XPs late last year at the peak of the market with price protection. And, you know, now we're reaping the benefit of that because we're getting credits for a substantial portion of that order. And so the amount of CapEx we have to deploy is very low now compared to what it would have been. And so we're seeing the benefit of that impacting the amount of CapEx we have to make, which, you know, had we needed to go to the market to raise that capital would have been much more expensive. So, you know, we've been riding this perfect storm for us that's been positive in that we've been able to continue to grow and hit our stride. You know, we have been receiving all our deliveries more or less on time. And we're at a kind of a point now where 
as soon as we receive miners, they get plugged in perspective. And, uh, you know, everything, knock on wood, is going pretty well. Obviously, the, you know, Compute North bankruptcies created some noise in the marketplace, but it hasn't affected our operations. You know, again, you can go look and see Maripool and, you know, see that, you know, we're producing more and more Bitcoin every day. And so that's indicative of the fact that operations continue without any issues. And, you know, we're excited about the future. We're excited about where we'll be at the end of this year, even more excited about where we're going to be kind of mid next year at 23 exahash. And then, you know, excited about what the back half of 23 and 24 are going to bring. I want to really quickly just shout out to our audience, everyone watching over on Rumble, just a reminder, I never get this right. All right. It's like over there, where you can subscribe and down there to press the plus button over on Rumble. Be sure to do that. If we get 50 pluses on Rumble, we will drop some free sats over on YouTube. If you are watching and not yet subscribed, both the like and subscribe button are down there. When we get to 100, we will also drop some sats in the chat for you guys. And of course, if you are listening to this on the podcast channel, be sure to subscribe as well. Fred, you brought up the Compute North bankruptcy filing. I'd first just love to hear uh, what lessons you and your team took away from uh, this interaction, this business dealing? When you're relying on a partner to build out projects, it's kind of just like in the real estate industry. You're relying on somebody to build out commercial buildings for you to use for your warehouses. If they have problems accessing capital, that becomes a problem. And you know, in the case of the Compute North bankruptcy, if you look at the filings, and I'm not going to stray away from anything that's public knowledge, you know, essentially, they had a capital provider who essentially took control of a couple of their projects because of a technical default. And then, you know, essentially forced Compute North to go into a chapter 11 to protect the rest of the assets and keep operating. And so chapter 11 is not like I'm going out of business and having to liquidate everything and, you know, pay back stuff to shareholders. It's really about restructuring the business so you can continue to operate and it provides the company that does it a protected place, kind of like a safe harbor, where customers and vendors can't really alter the terms of their contracts. So the company has a chance to reorganize and get itself back on its legs. And so, you know, the lesson learned here was really, we couldn't have predicted that the capital markets and the financial markets were going to go so negative as quickly as they did when we wrote the contracts for these sites early last year. So, you know, lesson learned is you have to look at, you know, your hosting partner's ability to raise capital. And, you know, as you look at the partners we're choosing going forward, you'll see that they tend to be public companies are very large and where capital isn't an issue. So that was clearly the lesson learned. From a perspective of execution, you know, you can never really know how long the regulatory approval process for a new mining site is going to take. And so because these projects typically take six to nine months to do, you hopefully pad enough time in there. And in some cases, they take longer. And in some cases, they come in on schedule. Um, so the lesson learned there is you try and work with people who have an existing site that's already permitted, where you're just adding capacity to that site. So there's less risk. So things like that, that are, you know, you live and learn. And, uh, you know, this business changes every day. You know, global hash rate goes up and down. Price of Bitcoin goes up and down. Cost of rigs goes up and down. There are new hardware vendors coming to market. Are they going to be good machines? Are they going to be bad machines? Do you choose the right vendor, the wrong vendor? There are a lot of decisions you have to make on a daily basis. And you hope that the majority of those decisions are going to be right versus wrong. And, uh, you know, you hopefully learn from your wrong lessons. And, you know, having been in the tech industry for over 40 years, I have learned a lot of lessons <laughs> over the years. Certainly had my share of blisters and burnt fingers. And, uh, you know, hopefully Marathon as a team, you know, we start making better and better decisions every year. So, 
Yeah, it's the only way to it's the only way to grow. If you're not taking risks, you're not uh, you're not growing and learning. Uh, on that note, yep. I'm I'm so curious to ask, like, what was the 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 thinking behind and the experience behind sort of the you know OFAC compliance approach that you guys the direction that you guys went at one point? Because then you you quickly sort of shifted off of that, and yeah, what what happened there? So you know, there was a belief. You know, we had a belief internally that the financial markets and institutional investors would be more interested in investing in Bitcoin if the Bitcoin that they acquired was fully OFAC compliant, meaning it wasn't tainted in any way. Because one thing that in our discussions with institutional investors, hedge funds and others that were looking to invest in Bitcoin was, you know, what's keeping you back? And one of the things was, well, we don't know if, you know, this Bitcoin's been held by somebody who's violated a sanctions list or is on a PEP list, which is a, you know, for politically people who are have been exposed politically that essentially would be violating OFAC. And so, you know, we only want to be able to buy Bitcoin that is virgin and has never been in a wallet that has been in a, on an OFAC list. And more importantly, you know, we don't know if a Bitcoin reward paid to a miner for a block that includes non-compliant transactions would in, in a sense be tainted. And so in working with our pool operator, we said, could we make an OFAC compliant filter? And they said, yes, they had already built it for somebody else. We deployed it, the you know, marketplace and it you know, exploded in anger over that. And you know, one of the first things I did when I became CEO last year in April was take a knee, so to say, and basically say, we're not going to do it. So end of story. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. I, I think, you know, as you mentioned, you're, you're one of the most, you know, transparent miners that are publicly traded out there. And, and I, I appreciate it. Yeah. Makes sense. Thank you. I also have to say there, there's a degree of this where you guys are pioneering a whole new industry and it, it's going to involve, I think, some growing pains. And, and I, I've made the joke to you when I had the opportunity to meet you at the Bitcoin conference in Miami, but you know, thank you first and foremost for helping me make a, a lot of money in 2021. But I'd love it if you could just share, I don't think very many people actually realize how small your team at Marathon is and how you guys accomplish everything you have and grown as rapidly as you guys have grown. Do you mind just sharing that with our audience? Sure. So when I became CEO in April of last year, I was employee number four. Today we have 22 employees and most probably by the end of this year, we'll get a little closer to 30. But, you know, essentially we have a lot of people who are experts in different fields and are able to make, you know, great decisions, hopefully. And because of that, we can rely on third parties who are experts at what they do, you know, either at building sites, operating sites, you know, designing miners and doing things like that. You know, as we grow the business, you know, at 23 exahash will be six times bigger than we were last year at three exahash. You know, what ends up happening is you have to start adding more people who can start really providing more insight as to what's happening in the future, right? Because any decision we make won't be executed possibly for, or you won't see the impact of that decision maybe for nine months or a year. So I order a bunch of machines from Bitmain or I order machines from a different vendor you know, I won't know if that's going to work out or not until I receive the machines and plug them in. If I contract with a hosting provider, you know, I'm not sure that they're going to be able to execute until they do execute. And so the size of our decisions keep getting bigger and bigger. You know, at, you know, if you think about it, you know, we made over a 
billion plus dollars of CapEx decisions last year. Those are big decisions. <laughs> and you got to be pretty sure that you're doing the right thing. And so as we add to our team, we're adding people who really help us see over the horizon and help us understand what's happening in the technology world, what's happening with hardware, what's happening with energy pricing, what's happening in the energy markets, you know, what's happening in the capital markets. And on top of that, as a public company, as the regulators get more and more kind of comfortable with crypto miners, the regulatory burden actually grows. So, you know, you guys may have seen that, you know, the SEC wants ESG reporting about energy sources and where do we source our energy? What's our carbon footprint? Well, you know, that requires people to have to do all that. And so you have a certain regulatory burden, you know, in finance, accounting and reporting, et cetera, that you have to add just because you're a public company and you're getting bigger and bigger. And then because of the regulatory stuff and working with regulators, you also have to have more people focused on government relations. And as we get more investors, you have to have more people who are able to do with investor relations. And as we have more mining sites, you have to have more people who are able to go out and look at these sites and make sure that they're optimized. And as we continue now also start building more and more of our own systems around pool management to optimize how our pool operates, how our machines operates, you know, we're doing all sorts of research around how to optimize miners and, you know, what we can do in working with a miner uh, developer to develop even better miners. You know, today, you know, we're still like back in the early days of data centers where they were taking desktop servers. If you remember these cabinets that were, you know, kind of two and a half feet high, eight inches wide, that had a lot of air in them, that people were using in data centers. And then eventually you migrated to blade servers and you know one U high rack mounted devices that were specially designed for data centers. That's where we're going now. You know, This industry is shifting from shoe boxes that sit on shelves to high density blade based machines that sit in immersion. And uh, that transition is gonna happen over the next you know two to three years. And you know hopefully the right, Hardware manufacturers are going to do it. I know certain mining manufacturers are very focused on cooling their miner miners, not using immersion, but using other technologies. We happen to think that's the absolute wrong way to go. We think immersion is the right way to go. We think high-density blade-based servers architectures are the right way to go. And you know, we're very focused on working with vendors to design and implement those. But again, you know, we don't do that as an internal effort. We partner with people, but we have to have experts on our team who understand hardware design, semiconductors, understand how to choose what vendor we're going to work with, because these are decisions that are going to, we're going to have to live with for years in the future. So as we build our team, it's really building a core brain trust of people who are experts at layer one, layer two, understand all the plumbing and the infrastructure that goes into Bitcoin mining and Bitcoin operations. We're spending a lot of time looking at layer two and how we can play a role in layer two, you know, as a miner and a pool operator, because we actually write blocks there's some really interesting stuff we can do there that we're looking at. And so I think you're going to see us continue to kind of not just grow our mining operations, but grow the potential business opportunities that can run on top of mining and on top of Bitcoin at layer two and beyond. Can you speak a little bit more about that? I'm so curious. Like what, what type of layer two technologies you're talking about? Lightning, you're talking about, you know, other layer two, what's, uh, what's going on there? Yeah. So, you know, the, I'm a big believer and, you know, listen, I've seen, Lots of cycles in industry, in technology industries. It was very early pioneer in the IoT space, spent a lot of time in the whole build out of the internet, data comm space. And, you know, you need to remove the friction points to ease adoption. And, you know, doing things with Bitcoin 
and even with lightning still have a certain amount of friction to them, right? You still have to deal with keys and wallets and you still have to deal with setting up nodes, et cetera, and enlightening channels. And so, you know, we look at the opportunity to build infrastructure that are, think of it as picks and shovels that just make life easier. And if you can make life easier and you make using this technology as close to magic as possible, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, somebody with that expression, then adoption happens. And, you know, we already have an adoption curve going on in the marketplace today which is very parallel to the internet adoption. And we're kind of where the internet was in 1997. And you know we're right hitting that S curve of inflection. And what's really exciting about that is the more barriers to adoption we can remove, the faster that S curve is gonna accelerate. And that's something that really excites me. And so we're looking at you know, technologies where it's not, you know, we're not gonna build a consumer facing trading business or anything like that. It's infrastructure. Think of it as plumbing. Think, think of it as tools that make things more usable. Think of it as things that allow other types of assets to be secured by the Bitcoin blockchain. And so while we won't provide the securitization service, we will certainly provide the infrastructure that does it. And I think that's a really exciting area where you look at all the effort, energy, and CapEx that goes into proof of work mining to secure the Bitcoin blockchain. Imagine if you could leverage all of that to provide security for all sorts of other things like identity, like healthcare data, like financial data, you know, property records, all sorts of data. And if you could write that on the Bitcoin blockchain in a way that provided, allowed the Bitcoin blockchain to kind of be the immutable record for that data, now, all of a sudden, you're writing data on the world's most secure blockchain. And you're doing it in a way where the incremental cost to do it is very low because miners have already invested in the mining rigs to secure the Bitcoin blockchain, pool operators, et cetera. And so now this is just a value-added service on top of it. And I think when you start adding those points to the industry, you're going to start seeing more and more adoption of technologies being built on top of the Bitcoin blockchain at layer two and layer three eventually. Interesting. What do you see as the the biggest risk right now to the Bitcoin space? And the answer could be broader than just mining. It makes sense if it was, but what you- well, I mean, I, I think the the biggest risk to Bitcoin space today is irrelevance. And what do I mean by that? Well, the price of Bitcoin crashes to a thousand. You know, that will cause a lot of people to leave the space. A lot of miners will obviously have to shut down. It'll cause, and you know, the amount of capital that's been invested in the Bitcoin space today, both by investors and the underlying asset itself, Bitcoin, and the infrastructure, mining, et cetera. You know, if all that has to be written off, then it's going to take a lot of effort for people to want to come back. So I think the single biggest risk is just that there is some catastrophic event that causes a total lack of confidence in Bitcoin. Could it be that somebody hacks it? I doubt that's going to happen, but it could be a regulatory issue somehow. I don't think that's going to happen. There's, I don't think it's a very high risk for Bitcoin being prohibited at this point, but you know, there could be things that happen. You just never know. The other thing, and it could be a competitive, you know, somebody may come up with a better widget. I just don't think that's going to happen. I think today Bitcoin has grown to such a size that it's very hard to be supplanted. You know, it's kind of like if you're going to build a search engine today to supplant Google, rots of rock. It's not going to be very easy. And to be more relevant than Google is from a perspective of search results and 
scale that to you know a bigger size than than Google. So I don't really see that happening for Bitcoin. But it's things we look at all the time. We're constantly looking at the threats over the horizon. What could impact us? The you know, cost of energy could definitely have a huge impact, but that would affect really solely miners. It wouldn't affect Bitcoin in and of itself, I don't think, as much. Other than longer term, you'd have fewer people mining. And so would the security of Bitcoin go down? What would that impact it? But I think generally, it's really just more a risk for you know, people's fear more than anything else. Got it. What would, what would you say, in your opinion, is the largest hurdle for global Bitcoin adoption? Volatility is the biggest single inhibitor today to financial institutions adopting Bitcoin. So think of it this way. You have Bitcoin, the asset, as a store of value. And volatility is great for traders. Volatility is good for some investors. But long term, if Bitcoin's trajectory keeps going where it's been going, you know, that'll sort itself out. You know, Bitcoin is used to having these cycles. And people get more and more comfortable with these cycles ending and eventually Bitcoin coming back. So will that be how Bitcoin operates in the future? Who knows? You know, I can't, certainly can't project that. I don't have that crystal ball. But I think what we are going to see is continued adoption of Bitcoin that'll accelerate as barriers to adoption come down. You know, a lot of people have been focused on the price of Bitcoin and the financial markets. Very few people have been reading things like, guess what? NASDAQ is building together with other third parties, a custody platform for crypto assets. Why would they do that unless they thought this was a long-term, very exciting business to be in? You know, look at what BlackRock is doing. You look at what all these large financial companies are doing. They are building infrastructure so that institutional investors will be able to invest in, buy, hold, and trade Bitcoin and other cryptos uh, with ease. And when you do that, you facilitate the market. And you know, think about it. Over 65% of Bitcoin today is held in long-term wallets. It's not trading. There's a lot of volatility because anytime any volume of Bitcoin hits the market, it's going to move the price one way or another. If you look at the number of transactions being done from wallets that hold more than $10 million worth of Bitcoin, it's also increasing, which says more and more institutional companies and investors are trading Bitcoin. But they don't trade it on exchanges. They trade it over OTC desks. So, you know, retail is what creates a lot of short-term volatility in Bitcoin because they do it on exchanges. When you're trading OTC desk, you're trading a large block of Bitcoin, two parties negotiate a price. It's not like they put out 10,000 Bitcoin on an exchange and see who's going to offer it to them. They do it over an OTC desk. And the same thing happens in the stock market with block sales of stocks. Most people don't really realize that unless they've run a public company or been on the investing side professionally. So like when Warren Buffett buys stock in Occidental Petroleum, he's not necessarily buying it in the open market. He's going to a market maker and he's saying, I want to buy a large block of stock and they find somebody who wants to sell it. And it's a, almost like a P2P transaction. So as Bitcoin volatility starts shrinking because institutional investors get more and more involved, what's going to happen is people will get more confident that the asset's not going to be bouncing all over the place in price. And so they'll start investing and holding their assets there. As the regulatory world for relative to how Bitcoin is taxed, how Bitcoin is held on the balance sheet, as those things become more investor friendly, more user friendly, then people can actually start using Bitcoin for transacting. But again, volatility is important. You know, do I want to spend, use Bitcoin for spending if there's a lot of volatility? Do I as a merchant want to accept Bitcoin for consumers? 
<clears throat> if there's a lot of volatility, or do I have to turn it right into fiat overnight, in which case, why not just to use fiat? So I think volatility is a trader's friend and an investor's friend, but I think it's also an inhibitor. And so as volatility decreases, you'll see more and more adoption, you'll see more and more happening. As the regulatory frameworks get more ironed out, you'll see more adoption as well. And you know, I am super optimistic about where Bitcoin is going to go over the next five to 10 year period. I just think we have some rocky roads ahead of us to get there. But it's not unlike any other industry. The internet went through this. Lots of other industries have gone through this. Okay. I was asked not to ask you this question, but I'm like the rookie in our at our company. So I want to still ask this question because I think it I think it's a valid talking point. And if it's not, please shame me. You are so welcome, Fred, to shame me for asking it. But what does the future of Bitcoin mining look like when the Bach reward is less than one whole Bitcoin? So the traditional answer is that there will be a crossover point long before that, where transaction fees make a greater percentage of the revenues of miners than the block rewards. You know, long before we get to one Bitcoin per block, I think we're going to start seeing transaction fees come up again as adoption happens. And now I'm not saying that, you know, people are going to be buying, you know, subway tickets with Bitcoin necessarily, but as institutional adoption continues to grow, what we're going to continue to see is the transaction value in each block will be higher and higher. And that means that transaction fees can be higher as well. You know, if you're, if a block, for example, has, you know, let's say 200 trades in it that are $100 million each, well, guess what? The transaction fees for those will likely be quite high because somebody trading that amount is going to want to make sure that their transaction is in the next block that gets mined as opposed to waiting for it somewhere down the road. So I fully expect transaction fees to increase, but I also expect that miners, as I alluded to earlier, there are services that miners will be able to provide the blockchain, securing other types of data that will be revenue producing in excess of block rewards and transaction fees. And so, you know, longer term, miners really become a utility operator, not unlike a phone company. It sounds boring. Um, you know, we're not going to be you know, regulated monopolies, if you would. But, you know, like any traditional industry, there'll be some consolidation. You'll have a number of large miners and then a slew of smaller miners. And they will operate businesses with some unique aspects to them that provide value-added services above and beyond just pure play mining. And that's what will kind of differentiate different miners. There'll be specialists in different areas. And over the long run, you know, miners will, you know, have different revenue streams where the core processing of blocks is kind of the engine that drives everything. And it's the services around that that drive kind of long-term profitability. Thank you for, for walking us through that, Fred. And I love the analogy of consolidation because we see it across every sector. At a certain point, consolidation is a necessary byproduct. I do want to ask you, and, and we're going to speculate a little bit, so I hope you will entertain me but you've essentially laid out that there are three main components to the mining operation. It's the buying the right hardware, the location, having the rack space, and then the energy itself. Is there potential in the future for a business to follow the model of Apple in that they have their hand in this, but then eventually they just go and we're going to bring this in-house now. We're going to now manufacture our own chips and our own 
mining, I can't think of the world, but the, the word, but the actual physical mining contraption, we're going to build those ourselves. We're going to actually go out and we're going to produce by some sort of an energy company so that we are now producing our own energy as well. Is that in the realm of possibility for the development of this industry? Absolutely. Now, you know, building your own energy generation or acquiring it, you know, you can do that in different ways. And, you know, we looked at this about two years ago, two or three years ago, the opportunity to buy some idle power plants that were gas generating, what are called shaver plants. These are these gas power plants that basically it's like a jet engine that sits in a building and they can turn it on when the grid needs electricity and you can turn it off when it doesn't. And you basically get the premium price for energy because the market really needs it. And, you know, these assets sit idle sometimes. And there were some assets like this that were in the marketplace a couple of years ago that we looked at. And then we looked at all of the regulatory headache of owning a power plant and what that entailed. And the fact that it's just, it's an onerous business and it's a 20 or 30 year business. It's not a kind of five to 10 year business. So I think, you know, buying traditional energy generating resources doesn't make sense. Now, that being said, alternative energy sources could very well make sense over time. But I think the best thing to do is always, and this is something I learned in the private equity and venture capital world when I worked there, is that, you know, partnering with people and using other people's investment dollars to do things gets you the same outcome as if you had to invest it in yourself. You know, a difference with Apple and this industry is, you know, think about Apple has a product that unlike the Microsoft world, just to separate it, if you would, or the uh, you know, Android world, by vertically integrating all the hardware, chips, operating software on the device, and essentially letting apps be the only thing that third parties do in their ecosystem, they're able to essentially capture over 85, 84% of all the gross margin dollars of the smartphone industry, whereas they only have you know, 20% or less market share. That's, you know, says a huge amount about Apple's power and leverage in the industry and what they're able to do. The mining industry is different. You know, there are less, there are about 4 million mining rigs installed in the world today. So if you're going to design chips, which costs tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, and you're going to produce chips and you're going to keep producing the next generation and going to the next iteration, that's a business that's really hard to do if you only consume 10% of all the mining rigs out there, right? Even at 20%, that's hard. For Bitmain at 60%, yeah, they can do that. But it's going to get harder and harder as time goes on. So vertically integrating into designing and building your own miner fully in-house doesn't make sense in my mind. However, <clears throat> investing together with other miners in companies that are developing mining rigs could very well make sense because that's good for the whole ecosystem. And at the end of the day, you know, what's good for one miner could be good for many other miners. So I've talked about power, talked about vertically integrating on the hardware side, building your own hosting sites, you know, that's already being done today by, you know, people like Riot and Core. And we don't think the profitability in the hosting site makes it worth deploying capital there. Now, would we deploy capital in energy generating resources? You know, we might, if it's the right opportunity, if it's clean energy, it's, you know, energy that can operate with very high uptime and gives us an opportunity to support the grid. You know, we could very well do that. The question is just, you know, 
again, do we want to deploy capital to do something or are there people who have lots of that available? And today still, there are lots of people developing solar and wind sites, geothermal sites, biofuel sites and others where we can contribute a little bit of capital, get access to it, get the benefits of it without having to do it all ourselves. So, you know, as this industry grows, will people become more and more vertically integrated? Some may. But I think that it's still a very small industry and nobody has the overall heft that's big enough to make it worth the while to fully vertically integrated energy, hardware, et cetera. I want to take up one question from the audience that I saw earlier, and that was just for individuals at home right now. Would you recommend they go down this path and try to set up a mining operation or is that money better spent just buying and holding some Bitcoin? in your opinion? So if you think about it, if you're going to set up your own mining rigs at home and whether you do it with like a compass or whatever, you know, you're going to buy a miner, you know, that's, you know, four or 5,000 bucks. And then you got to pay for the energy for it to mine. And then you got to point it at a pool and, you know, get your rewards. You know, where Bitcoin is priced today, that may not necessarily be a good investment. And now I'm talking about mining at home, for example, unless you want to you have a good use for the heat, you heat your basement in the winter, possibly. But I think it's going to be tough as the having comes along because energy prices for a retail buyer of energy, you know, like mining at your house, are just way too high. And you know, even with an S19 XP in the home, that may not be profitable at today's level, depending on your cost of energy. What you can do instead is you could do things like buy hash rate futures, which are a type of financial instrument that are starting to become available, where you essentially can, it's just like in the farming industry, you know, a farmer today who plants corn, they sell futures on their corn production. And investors buy those futures because they bet that the price of corn is going to be higher than what the farmer thinks. And they think that that yield off that acre of land, if you would, is going to be higher than what the farmer thinks potentially. And so they're placing a bet and the farmer's placing a bet that, you know, they can get money up front for yield and you know the only risk they run is that they have to you know plant the seed harvest the corn and deliver the corn but they're getting their money up front and so they don't have to run the risk of you know where's corn going to be priced when i sell my harvest in the world of bitcoin mining as a miner you can sell a hash rate future to an investor and they can buy you know 100 pita hash 200 pita hash of my capacity and then i have to deliver to them that hash rate and the resulting Bitcoin that that hash rate would produce. That's a way for a miner to raise capital for their mining operation. And it's a way for investors to invest as if they were a miner without any of the CapEx required. And so I think what you're going to see is initially institutional investors will buy these products and then somebody's going to bundle these things together and offer it as a ETF or something for consumers to invest in. And that would be a very attractive way to get exposure it's essentially, you are a miner, you just have no hassles. <laughs> it's fully outsourced and you know you don't have to do anything other than collect your uh, the Bitcoin that that hash rate that you purchased produces. You don't have to have the miners running in your house. You're not paying retail electricity. You're getting the benefit of wholesale buying from the industrial miner. And so that's an attractive way to do it. The al other alternative is you can you know just buy stocks in, in Bitcoin mining companies, but you know that has all sorts of other risks just driven by the fact that it's the stock market. Fred, I want to thank you so much for giving up so much of your time to spend with 
two bozos in their basements to talk about all the hard work and incredible things you and your team are doing. I want to give you one last opportunity to touch on or share anything we didn't get to talk about as well as how people can stay up to date with the incredible work you and your team are doing. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to be on. I think anybody who wants to kind of stay up to date with what we're doing, just look on our website. And if you know how to look at our pool and I want to see, you know, the block rewards that we get, you know, it's pretty exciting. You know, I know I certainly have a a window on my desktop that's constantly looking at the block rewards. And it's a great way to see kind of how Marathon is doing. And then just stay tuned. There's going to be a lot of exciting things we'll be announcing over the next 12 months about some of the future efforts we're doing that we think are going to be exciting for the industry. So appreciate it. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. Bitcoin Magazine and the team that brought you the world's largest Bitcoin conference is bringing the mission of hyper-Bitcoinization global with the inaugural European gathering this fall. Bitcoin Amsterdam takes place October 12th through 14th at the beautiful Westergaas venue in the heart of the city. Join thousands of Bitcoiners for three days of curated Bitcoin content that is relevant to the emerging Bitcoin scene in Europe and the global movement. Confirmed speakers include Dr. Adam Back, Alex Gladstein, Greg Foss, Ray Youssef, and many, many more. This will be an immersive conference which includes hands-on engagements at our proof-of-workshop stage, as well as exclusive content for VIP whales in the deep. Bitcoin Amsterdam's exclamation point will be a massive Bitcoin party and music festival that you won't want to miss. The European installment of Sound Money Fest takes place on day three of the event, October 14th, and admission is included with GA and whale passes. Check out all the details at b.tc forward slash conference and use promo code BMLIVE for 10% off. Ticket prices increase on August 21st, so grab your tickets today for €299 for a GA ticket and €3,499 for VIP whale passes. The censorship-resistant issue of the Bitcoin Magazine print edition is available now. Grab your copy at your local Barnes & Noble store or head on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your order today.